This morning, though, we're going to look at 2 Samuel chapter 21. And if you've attended Revolve, uh, you may not know how to find the Old Testament. I'm just kidding. You do know how to find the Old Testament. But it's not as common that messages are preached from the Old Testament. That's perfectly fine. Uh, a lot of times the focus is into the New Testament. And uh, there are there's just different purposes, different aspects of uh, scripture that are used. We, we know the genres, or hopefully we know that there are genres of scripture. And this morning we're going to look at 2 Samuel chapter 21. We're going to be looking at a narrative uh, that takes place, and it's an interesting narrative that provides for us some principles of life. One of the challenges as we minister, as IBL ministers in foreign countries such as East Africa, uh, in, into other places such as India or Asia, even South America, is oftentimes the Old Testament, sometimes the New Testament, but more often than not, the Old Testament passages, verses, are pulled out of context and weaponized in ways that God never intended them. They're taken from the author and the audience that they were intended for, and they're, they're brought over to another audience that God never intended that to be their command or, or their situation. But that doesn't mean that we neglect the Old Testament. And I know at Revolve, you would never neglect the Old Testament. But that doesn't mean that we neglect it. But there are principles, there are things that we can always look to when we go through texts of Scripture in the Old Testament to pull principles out for us to say, what are we learning about God? What are we learning about his character? And what are some principles that we need to glean from that passage in order to be the believer that God intends us to be? And so that's what we want to look at this morning. I've entitled this message, Restless Bones, When the Sins of the Father Demands Justice. So that may be an intriguing title, may be an intriguing topic for you to look at and say, well, I've not really ever looked at 2 Samuel, let alone 2 Samuel chapter 21. So we're going to look at some 14 verses this morning, and we're going to just walk our way through in this narrative to say what is taking place, what is happening, and what principles apply into my life as a believer. So let's look at 2 Samuel chapter 21. We'll just read through verses 1 through 14, and then we'll start to look at what God has for us this morning. Verse 1 of 2 Samuel 21 says this, Now there was a famine in the days of David for three years, year after year. And David sought the face of the Lord. And the Lord said, There is blood guilt on Saul and on his house, because he has put the Gibeonites to death. So the king called the Gibeonites and spoke to them. Now the Gibeonites were not of the people of Israel, but of the remnant of the Amorites. Although the people of Israel had sworn to spare them, Saul had sought to strike them down in his zeal for the people of Israel and Judah. And David said to the Gibeonites, what shall I do for you? And how shall I make atonement that you may bless the heritage of the Lord? The Gibeonites said to him, it is not a matter of silver or gold between us and Saul or his house. Neither is it for us to put any man to death in Israel. And he said, what do you say that I shall do for you? They said to the king, the man who consumed us and planned to destroy us so that we should have no place in all the territory of Israel, let seven of his sons be given to us so that we may hang them before the Lord at Gibeah of Saul, the chosen of the Lord. And the king said, I will give them. But the king spared Mephibosheth, the son of Saul's son, Jonathan, because of the oath of the Lord that was between them. 
between David and Jonathan, the son of Saul. The king took the two sons of Rizpah, the daughter of Ai, whom she bore to Saul, Armoni and Mephibosheth, and the five sons of Merib, the daughter of Saul, whom she bore to Adriel, the son of Barzillai, the Mahathalite. And he gave them into the hands of the Gibeonites, and they hanged them on the mountain before the Lord. And the seven of them perished together. They were put to death in the first days of harvest at the beginning of barley harvest. Then Rizpah, the daughter of Ea, took sackcloth and spread it for herself on the rock from the beginning of harvest until rain fell upon them from the heavens. And she did not allow the birds of the air to come upon them by day or the beasts of the field by night. When David was told what Rizpah, the daughter of Ea, the concubine of Saul, had done, David went and took the bones of Saul and the bones of his son Jonathan from the men of Jabesh-Gilead, who had stolen them from the public square of Bethshan, where the Philistines had hanged them on the day the Philistines killed Saul on Gilboa. And he brought up from there the bones of Saul and the bones of his son Jonathan, and they were gathered, the bones of those who were hanged. And they buried the bones of Saul and his son Jonathan in the land of Benjamin in Zelah in the tomb of Kish his father, and they did all that the king commanded. And after that, God responded to the plea for the land. Let's have a word of prayer. Father, we thank you this morning for this text of scripture. Even though it may seem confusing, even though it may seem barbaric, even though it may seem difficult to understand how this fits into our lives, Father, we are thankful that you are a righteous judge who will execute his justice faithfully upon the earth. Father, as we look at this narrative this morning, as we examine this text, would you open our hearts and our minds to the truth of your word, that we may be the Christian, the believer, the follower of Christ that you desire us to be. We pray these things in your son's name. Amen. You may look at this text, and if you're visiting to Revolve, you may say, wow, okay, that was not what I was thinking I was going to hear this morning. That was a lot. Um, so can we just go and, like, let's process that for a while? Well, that's oftentimes as you look at Old Testament texts, you see things like this that in today's age would be canceled, right? The uh, culture of today would cancel these types of narratives. They would cancel these types of, of dialogues because we don't want to think about them. We don't want to process through them. We don't want to evaluate what is God communicating to us. Well, it is believed that these last four chapters of the book of Second Samuel are seen as somewhat of an appendix or an addendum to David's life. In other words, it's not to be seen in chronological order. So if you've been tracking through like 2 Samuel or even 1 Samuel and you come to chapter 21, you think, okay, is this just fitting into the next sequence of events of David's life? These last few chapters are actually to be seen as more of an addendum to David's life. Many commentators believe that in chapter 21, we actually see David as a royal judge who is meeting out justice on behalf of God as he engages in the life of Israel. In fact, Jonathan Edwards stated it this way in his books, The Types of Messiah. There is yet a more remarkable, manifest, and manifold agreement between the things said of David in his history and the things said of the Messiah in the prophecies. So as we unfold the life of David, as we unfold some of the events of David, 
we're going to see some types, if you will, or some reflections, if you will, of who the Messiah is. In other words, the Old Testament is given to us in part to reveal to us who God is. We haven't seen him. We haven't touched him. We know that the disciples saw Christ when he was here on earth. That's why John makes mention of that in 1 John chapter 1. The things which we have seen and heard and we've touched and we handled him, that's what we're declaring to you. But in the Old Testament text, we are, we're getting an understanding of the fullness of the nature of God and who he is and how he acts and what he decrees to be done. So given that fact that this passage describes the death of Saul and Jonathan, it seems that this probably would have taken place earlier in David's reign as opposed to later. But before we get into this narrative, there is an element that we need to think about for just a minute. And I don't want to lose us in this side note that we're going to give us here, but I want us to think about and look at, we're going to look at some texts of Scripture that deal with personal responsibility versus collective responsibility. Because sometimes it's easy for us as believers or maybe people that are trying to understand God and his word to sit there and go, I read this text and it seems to contradict this text. So how do we uh, rectify those two things? How do we reconcile those two things? Well, we want to look at this issue for just a minute of personal responsibility and collective responsibility. In other words, how do we account for the issue of what Saul has done as we see here in verse 1? Well, we know, you may not have this on the tip of your tongue and knowledge, but we know from Ezekiel chapter 18 that the behavior of the father should not be held against the son. However, We also know from Joshua chapter 7, verses 24 through 25, that there are times when the sins of the father are held against the children. I'm a son. I'm also a father. That's a sobering thought to think about. It's sobering to think about that I may face consequences because of the action that my father took, that my children will face consequences because of the actions that their father has taken. Yet at the same time, I stand solely before God, the judge, to account for what I have done without repercussions at times onto my children. So how do we think through this? How do we process through these these texts of Scripture? In other words, when is it personal responsibility, meaning only the Father pays for his sins, and when is it collective responsibility, meaning the children pay for their father's sins? Well, let's look, for instance, at Ezekiel chapter 18, verses 1 through 4. If you have your Bibles, you can turn there. Ezekiel chapter 18, verses 1 through 4. If you are a critic of Scripture, I don't know that anybody in here would be like a higher critic of Scripture, but there are plenty of people that are the higher critics of Scripture. You're looking for any way that you can try to prove that the Bible is contradictory. You're trying to look for any way that you can justify that you shouldn't have to follow this because it doesn't reconcile with itself. But look at Ezekiel chapter 18, verses 1 through 4. It says this, The word of the Lord came to me. What do you mean by repeating this proverb concerning the land of Israel? The fathers have eaten sour grapes and the children's teeth are set on edge. As I live, declares the Lord, this proverb shall no more be used by you in Israel. Behold, all souls are mine. The soul of the Father as well as the soul of the Son is mine. The soul who sins 
shall die. Look on in verse 14. Now suppose this man fathers a son who sees all the sins that his father has done. He sees and does not do likewise. He does not eat upon the mountains or lift up his eyes to the idols of the house of Israel, does not defile his neighbor's wife, does not oppress anyone, exacts no pledge, commits no robbery, but gives his bread to the hungry and covers the naked with a garment, withholds his hand from iniquity, takes no interest or profit, obeys my rules and walks in my statutes. So you have a father who has sinned and a son who has been righteous. He shall not die for his father's iniquity. He shall surely live. As for his father, because he practiced extortion, robbed his brother, and did what is not good among his people, behold, he shall die for his iniquity. So Ezekiel 18 communicates to us, oh, when the father sins and the son is righteous, the father will pay and the son will not. Great. That's personal responsibility. But what happens when the father commits sin and the son does not? Does the Bible account for any time where the son would have to pay? The answer is yes. Look in Joshua chapter 7, verse 24 through 25. It's like a Bible sword drill that you're going to get used to finding passages in the Old Testament. Joshua chapter 7, verses 24 through 25. It says this, verse 24, And Joshua and all of Israel with him took Achan, the son of Zerah, and the silver and the cloak and the bar of gold, and his sons and his daughters and his oxen and the donkeys and the sheep and his tent and all that he had, and they brought them up to the valley of Achor. And Joshua said, Why did you bring trouble on us? The Lord brings trouble on you today, and all Israel stoned him with stones. They burned them with fire and stoned them with stones. Achan and his entire family, his livestock, everything is destroyed. But I thought we just read in Ezekiel that if the father sins and the son is not necessarily guilty of that sin, he's not going to die. But now we see in Joshua that it's a situation where Achan has committed sin and his children die with him. What in the world is happening? Do we have to go out of here today and be leery and fearful of everything that our parents have ever done to think somehow there might be some retribution to us? That's a challenging question for some. The answer to this is collective responsibility. In other words, there are times when we see people acting as a representative on behalf of a family, a clan, or a nation. And when they are acting on those people's behalf as a representative, there are consequences that will extend to that family, to that clan, or to that nation as a result of the representation of that person. That's what's happening here in Achan's case. In Achan's case, he was acting on behalf of his family. Saul's situation, he was acting on behalf of the nation of Israel. Saul, as a representative, as the king of Israel, was acting on Israel's behalf. And Saul has committed a major sin. Not that sins are major or minor. But Saul has committed a major atrocity. And that's what leads us into verse 1 of 2 Samuel chapter 21. This is where we're finding David. 
we're finding David as he's looking at the situation and as he's evaluating what is happening, we're seeing David trying to understand what is happening in Israel. Why is the situation in Israel taking place? Well, what situation is taking place? Look back at verse 1 of 2 Samuel chapter 21. Now there was a famine in the days of David for three years, year after year. So David, as king of Israel, David, as leader of Israel, is looking at this going, why are we facing this famine? Why are we facing this tribulation? I'm trying to understand what's happening. I'm trying to understand what's going on. And I'm trying to understand how do we get out of this? How do I lead our people through this? And so as we're going to walk through this narrative, we're going to see David responding for once here in a right manner. We know the life of David. We know that he was a man after God's own heart, but we also know that there were times David did not do right. And there are times that David did right. In 2 Samuel 21, verses 1 through 14, we're going to see David acting in a manner that brings glory and honor to God to say, I am going to seek to understand why this is happening and what is taking place. So as David experiences this famine with Israel, it says there in the second part of Verse one, and David sought the face of the Lord. God, why is this happening? God, what is taking place? God, what has happened? Why are our people, why is our country in this famine? David sought the face of the Lord and God answers him. This is a beautiful text right here because I know that in my own life, I have sought God for wisdom. I have sought God for an answer, and it's not like it happens immediately. Sometimes it does, but sometimes God doesn't make it really clear to me why something is happening or what is taking place or what's going on. The Bible doesn't tell us how much time elapsed, but it seems to be that it was immediate. David sought the face of God, and the Lord said to him, the end of verse one, there is blood guilt on Saul and on his house because he put the Gibeonites to death. So David, looking at the famine of the land, David seeking God's face, David trying to understand what's happening, and God tells him, hey, listen, Saul has done wrong, and there are consequences that are going to be paid by the nation of Israel because of what Saul has done. I don't know about you, but I don't like when I'm in a situation where I have to deal with a mess I didn't create. Maybe you like to deal with messes you didn't create, but I don't necessarily like to deal with messes I didn't create. I create my own mess. I have my own issues. Those are plenty to keep me occupied. I don't want to have to deal with other people's messes that I didn't have anything to do with. That's where David finds himself. As the leader of Israel, as the king of Israel, finding himself in a situation where he is facing famine in the land, which is devastating to his people, and then he finds out, oh, Saul, who's dead, caused this. Now what am I supposed to do? Now what's supposed to happen? I can't go take care of Saul. I mean, if Saul were alive, maybe David could go see him. Maybe David could go talk to him. Like, what in the world were you doing? Why did you do this? But Saul is dead. So what is David supposed to do? How is David supposed to respond? Well, we look at this and say, well, man, what did did Saul do that was so devastating? What did Saul do that was so difficult? At the end of verse one, it tells us, he put the Gibeonites to death. 
Well, we read down a little bit further as we, as we see in verse 2. Now, the Gibeonites were not of the people of Israel, but were of the remnant of the Amorites. Well, they weren't part of Israel. So maybe Saul did this to defend the nation of Israel. Maybe Saul was acting valiantly as the king to defend Israel, and that's why he killed the Gibeonites. Why did Saul kill the Gibeonites? Some of you are sitting here going, I don't even know who the Gibeonites are. I don't even know why they, who they are, let alone why they got killed. But they're not part of Israel, so maybe they should have been killed. I don't know. Well, let's look at Joshua chapter 9 so that we have an understanding of who the Gibeonites are. This is important for us to examine as we see this narrative unfold. Joshua chapter 9. Verse 1, it says this, As soon as all the kings who were beyond the Jordan in the hill country and in the lowland, all along the coast of the great sea toward Lebanon, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites, there's great pronunciation opportunities in the Old Testament, heard of this, they gathered together as one to fight against Joshua in Israel. Oh, okay, so those guys are our enemies. Those guys are the enemies of Israel. Part of them are the Amorites. Those are important to remember because verse 2 uh, reminds us of this, of 2 Samuel 21. So all of these people are coming against Joshua and Israel. But when the inhabitants, verse 2, or verse 3 rather, but when the inhabitants of Gibeon heard what Joshua had done to Jericho and Ai, remember what happened to Jericho, remember what happened at Ai, hopefully, they on their part acted with cunning and went and made ready provisions and, turn, and took worn-out sacks for their donkeys and wineskins, worn out and torn and mended with worn-out patched sandals on their feet and worn-out clothes, and all their provisions were dry and crumbly. And they went to Joshua in the camp at Gilgal and said to him to, and to the men of Israel, we have come from a distant country, so now make a covenant with us. But the men of Israel said to the Hivites, perhaps you live among us, then how can we make a covenant with you? They said to Joshua, we are your servants. And Joshua said to them, who are you? And where do you come from? Verse nine, they said to him, from a very distant country, your servants have come because of the name of the Lord your God, for we have heard a report of him and all that he did in Egypt and all that he did to the two kings of the Amorites who were beyond the Jordan, to Sihon, the king of Heshbon, and to Og, the king of Bashan, and who lived in Ashtaroth. So our elders and all the inhabitants of our country said to us, Take provisions in your hand for the journey and go to meet them and say to them, we are your servants. Come now, make a covenant with us. Here's our bread. It is still warm when we took it from our houses as our food for the journey on the day we set out to come to you. But now it has become, behold, it is dry and crumbly. These wineskins were new when we filled them and behold, they have burst. And these garments and sandals of ours are worn out from the very long journey. So the men took some of their provisions, but did not ask counsel of the Lord. And therein is going to, like, if this is a movie, this is the ba-ba-ba moment, right? This is the moment where you go, oh, the plot just thickens. These people were doing a snow job to the Israelites. They were actually part of this group that was coming against Israel, but they were smart enough to go, I don't know if we're going to make it. I don't know if that's the wisest move. I don't know if we should be part of the people that are coming against Israel. Let's concoct a plan. Let's act like we're from a far distant country. Let's act like we have been on a long journey. Let's act like we're their servants and let's act like we love them. Hey guys, just let us come in. And the Israelites 
are naively and unwisely duped into this situation. Not because of the cunning craftiness of the Gibeonites, but because of the arrogance of the Israelites that they thought they could make decisions without God's wisdom. So what happens? Verse 15. And Joshua made peace with them and made a covenant with them to let them live. And the leaders of the congregation swore to them. At the end of three days, after they had made a covenant with them, they heard that they were neighbors and they lived among them. Can you imagine? Like, oh my, what have we done? We have made a covenant with our enemies. And the people of Israel set out and reached their cities on the third day. Now their cities were Gibeon and Shephirah and Beeroth and Kiriath-Jerim. But the people of Israel did not attack them because the leaders of the congregation had sworn to them by the Lord, the God of Israel. Then all, this is like being elders, right? Then all the congregation murmured against the leaders. This has been going on for a long time. Don't worry. Leaders are going to mess up. Congregants, members are going to have problems. Everybody's got issues, right? Welcome to life. But all the leaders said to the congregation, we have sworn to them by the Lord, the God of Israel, and now we may not touch them. Like sometimes elders at churches that we serve get themselves into sticky wicket positions. The leaders of Israel were in a really bad spot. We made a covenant with our enemies but we can't do anything about it. We have to honor the covenant. We have to honor what we have said. And the leaders, verse 21, actually verse 20, this we will do to them. Let them live, lest wrath be upon us because of the oath that we swore to them. Who would the wrath be? Who would bring the wrath to them? God would bring the wrath to them because they made a covenant under the guise of God and they made a covenant with the Gibeonites. Verse 21, and the leaders said to them, let them live. So they became cutters of wood and drawers of water for all the congregation, just as the leaders had said of them. They became the servants, but they were spared. They were saved through this covenant. Joshua summoned them and he said to them, why did you deceive us saying we are very far from you when you dwell among us? Now, therefore, you are cursed and some of you shall never be anything but servants, cutters of wood and drawers of water for the house of my God. They answered Joshua, because it was told to your servants for a certainty that the Lord your God had commanded his servant Moses to give you all the land and to destroy all the inhabitants of the land from before you. So we feared greatly for our lives because of you and did this thing. And now behold, we are in your hand. Whatever seems good and right in your sight to do to us, do it. So he did this to them and delivered them out of the hand of the people of Israel and they did not kill them. But Joshua made them that day cutters of wood and drawers of water for the congregation and for the altar of the Lord to this day in the place that he should choose. This is the background story of the Gibeonites. All of this, Ezekiel 18, Joshua Uh, The passage that we looked at in Joshua, this passage here in Joshua 9, all of this plays into and informs us of 2 Samuel 21. That actually is a little example of how you should be doing Bible study, if I can just kind of go into a pastoral mode here. Like you should read 2 Samuel 21 and you should start asking questions. Who are these people? Where did they come from? Don't just say, I don't know how to pronounce their name. I'm just going to fly over that. Figure out, because scripture tells us, and when we put all the pieces together, we can go, oh, now we see the weight of 2 Samuel chapter 21. Now we see what's happening. And so let's go back to 2 Samuel chapter 21. 
now that we kind of have this whole little background of narrative, we look at 2 Samuel chapter 21. And we see that what had happened was that Saul, at some point, had killed the Gibeonites. At some point, in all of the melee of this stuff, Saul had decided, I'm going to break the covenant, and I'm going to kill those people. That's what David is now dealing with. Because the guy before him made the decision to break the covenant that God had made with these people. Because Israel had not sought God for counsel and not sought God for wisdom, they are now bound in a covenant with their enemies. And God said that covenant means you're not to kill them. For the rest of their days, they're going to serve as a reminder that you should have sought God's face for wisdom. I mean, think about that. The Gibeonites, the drawers of wood and and cutters of wood and drawers of water, the servants are going to be constant reminders to Israel, oh, those guys are our enemies, but they're with us because we didn't seek God's wisdom. We just did our own thing. And now David comes onto the scene, and David is the leader of Israel, and there's a famine in the land, and he's trying to figure out, why is there a famine in the land? How do I help my people? And he goes to God, and God says, listen, there's blood guilt. Something's happened. There's a reason why there's a famine, and that reason is because Saul killed the Gibeonites. So now what is David going to do? He's got some options. He's got some choices. He's got a situation that he does not want to be in, but how does David respond? And as we look at these 14 verses, there are seven principles that we want to pull out to say this when we are faced with difficult decisions, when we are faced with difficult circumstances in every one of us, including myself, in this room, are always facing wisdom issues. What do we do? In our flesh, we can just, I'm going to make a quick decision and go this direction, and God, I'll give you a break today because I've really sought your face a few other times this week, and I know you're really busy, and I think I'll just do this on my own today. And that's exactly what Joshua and his men did with the Gibeonites And they were duped into the covenant that they had to make with them when they were sold a bill of goods that these people were from some foreign country when they were really the enemies that were attacking them. They just figured out how to show themselves as not really the threat. And all of us are going to face situations where we have a choice. Do we trust in our own wisdom or do we trust in God's wisdom? So let's look at seven principles. Principle number one, found in verse one, it is always best to seek God's wisdom. No matter what, no matter what the situation is, we should never, as believers, get to the point where we say, yeah, God, I got this. Like, God, I, I'm, you know, I'm good. I don't need your wisdom right now to make this decision. This is like a minor decision, God. This is insignificant. I don't need you. We look at verse one, and there was a famine in the days of David for three years, year after year, and David sought the face of the Lord. There's plenty of opportunities where we could look at David's life and say, you know, David did not follow this prescription. David did not follow this principle. And I think we know how those things played out. We know how David's life played out when he decided, hey, you know, it's the time when the kings are supposed to go off to battle, but I'm going to stay home, and oh, there's Bathsheba. How about that? We know what happened. 
Or how about when David said, yeah, I think I'd like to take a consensus, a, a, a census of the nation and just kind of do things on my own and, and figure out data on my own. Even though God doesn't want me to do it, I think it's okay for me to do this. There are plenty of situations that David did not do this. But here, David sought the wisdom of God. It is always best for us to seek God's wisdom. We know from Psalm chapter, 80, or Psalm chapter 34, verse 4, David says this, I sought the Lord, and he answered me and delivered me from all my fears. We know from Matthew chapter 7, verses 7 through 8, the Bible tells us this, Ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, and one who seeks finds, and to the one who knocks, it will be opened. James 1.5, we know, reminds us of this. If any man lacks wisdom, let him ask God, who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given to him. I know in my own life, there are plenty of times where I sit there and go, you know, God, why don't you take a break today? I love you. You are so good to me. But I think I got this one. Those are the situations when I look back, and I'm like, Dietz, what is, you are an idiot. Like, does not, you need God's wisdom. I need God's wisdom. Why? Because my mind, my body is finite. It is limited. It is struggling against the flesh. There are so many things that are happening. I cannot always see clearly, even though I think I can, that I need to say, you know what? In every situation, I want to seek God's wisdom. I want to seek what God has for us. So as husbands, as dads, as moms, as leaders within the church, Every decision that we're faced with, we should stop and say, you know what? What does God want me to do here? What does God want me to do? How does God want me to live? How does God want me to respond? Before I just rush headlong into some crazy decision, stop and say, God, I need to know your will, your decision, your wisdom right now. Man, it's easy for me because my life is crazy and there are lots of decisions and we get into this mode of like, oh yeah, we can make a thousand decisions, boom, 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 boom. And we come to a spiritual decision, something that we have to do and we go, oh, you know, I got this, God. And now we find ourselves like Joshua in a covenant with the Gibeonites. After three days, we wake up and go, oh my word, what have I done? How did we get here? How did this happen? We never go wrong when we seek God's wisdom. Principle number two, look in verse two. So God tells David there's blood guilt on Saul and on his house because he put the Gibeonites to death. God was very clear to David. Verse two, so the king called the Gibeonites and spoke to them. Now the Gibeonites were not of the people of Israel, as we've seen, but of the remnant of the Amorites, as we saw from Joshua 9. Although the people of Israel had sworn to spare them, Saul had sought to strike them down in his zeal for the people of Israel and Judah. And here's interesting principle number two. It is never acceptable to put anything in higher priority than God and his kingdom. It is never acceptable to put anything in higher priority than God and his kingdom. This is exactly what Saul did. Verse two. All the situation that's happening, verse two is unfolding. The king called the Gibeonites. Hey, what can we do for you? What's going on? What's happening? Although the people of Israel had sworn to spare them, Saul had sought to strike them down and was successful. 
And why did Saul strike them down? And this is going to strike a chord in some of our hearts today. Why did Saul strike them down? For his zeal for the people of Israel and Judah. He was the king. He loved his people. He loved his country. He loved the nation. Isn't it okay that he sought to destroy the enemies of Israel? And the answer is, sure, but not to violate the covenant that God decreed for them to keep. And Saul here decided that his higher motivation, his higher desire was for the the preeminence of Israel over the preeminence of God and his word and his covenant. We live, and I'm, I'm not a political person, and I don't know how you guys are, but we live in a world that is really confusing right now to a lot of people. We have slogans such as build back better and make America great again. I mean, let's just own what we know happens out in the world. Should America desire to be preeminent around the rest of the world? I don't know. Does God care more about America than he does Kenya? No, he does not. We have Christians who get sucked up into this notion of nationalism, sucked up into this notion of, you know what, the highest priority has to be America, to be a Republican or to be a Democrat. I don't care where you land politically. The highest priority is America. Put America first. That's wrong. The highest priority for every believer says it's God, it's his kingdom, it's his will, it's his desire because this world is not my home. I'm simply passing through. I am a believer in Jesus Christ. I've been transferred, as Colossians says, from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of light. And my desire must be to say, God, I want you to to have preeminence in everything over and above America or whatever country you may hail from. Saul was guilty of placing Israel above God. But he was the king, and they were the enemies, and they were a possible threat, and they should have been taken care of, but they weren't. Wasn't Saul justified to break God's covenant because he was defending Israel? And the answer is no. Saul was not justified to break the covenant that God had said because it violates the character and the nature of God. And I think as we see this unfold, it is the issue here that brings the blood guilt on Saul was not so much that he killed the Gibeonites, the individual people themselves, but rather what that represented was the breaking of the covenant that God had established. And Saul, acting as a leader, speaking on behalf of the nation, violated God's word on God's behalf, and God is never okay with that. God here is showing, I desire and mandate my glory above everyone else. And so we look at this from a human level, and we can sit there and go, oh man, I can, I can empathize with Saul. Like, I, I can see why he could have done this. But it's not okay that Saul did that. And the blood guilt that David is told is on Saul is because of this. And why did Saul do it? For his zeal, the end of verse 2, for the people of Israel and Judah. Great intentions. As a leader, man, we all live in America. 
We desire to have our country succeed and do well, and we desire for our leaders to look out for us, and we desire things to be prosperous. But the point at which believers say it's more important that America prospers than that God is is causes advance is a problem with Christianity. As Christians, we must always say, you know what, it's God. And we want him to be glorified. We want him to be honored. We want his cause to be advanced. Over and above my country, over and above my family, over and above my friends. And Saul was guilty here of engaging in this process of elevating the nation over God. Look at principle number three found in verse three. So can you imagine being David? Wow, okay, so man, we're in this mess. As a leader, I can understand this, but wow, we're here. I mean, David has to be, like we're not getting a running commentary into David's head here, but David has to be looking at this going, whew, that's a, that's a stark reminder to me. Better be a stark reminder to David. I don't want to put Israel over God. So what does David do? Verse three, David said to the Gibeonites, what shall I do for you? I think this is the unwritten, humble act of David. David is the leader, the king of Israel, and he goes to these servants, these slaves in essence, the, the, the drawers of water and the cutters of wood, the servants that, that Joshua re- reminds us, some of them will never advance out of that. Forever, they're just gonna be permanently slaves and servants in this low life. And David, the king of Israel, says, I'm gonna, I'm, I'm gonna have a meeting with them. And I, the king of Israel, am going to ask them, what can we do for you? How can we help? How do we make this right? That's that's humility that David had to exercise. Do you imagine, I mean, again, let's just think about this in our world today. Let's imagine, I know we're in political warfare in our world today, but let's imagine that you have illegal immigrants And the president of the United States comes and says, you know what, we've wronged you. What can we do to fix this? I mean, can you imagine if that played out in our politics today? I mean, some people might think that's already happening. I don't know. But that's the the situation that we're seeing. The king of Israel is going to the slaves and saying, how do we fix this? In this culture, David could have said, yeah, yeah, you're lucky any of you are still left. If I would have been Saul, I wiped you all out. But David humbles himself and he goes. Principle number three, we must always be doxological in our actions. That is a big fancy word that means glorifying God. Everything we do must be about the glory of God. Look at verse three. And David said to the Gibeonites, what shall I do for you? And how shall I make atonement? Why? That you may bless the heritage of the Lord. How do we make things right with our enemies so that our enemies are praising God? Man, this is really calling into question a lot of our human thoughts and a lot of our depravity can be happening in this situation. And here is David sitting there saying, you know, this is not about me going on some campaign to say, oh, look what I did to the Gibeonites. Look at the deal I brokered with the Gibeonites. Look at how amazing I was to the Gibeonites. This is David saying, you know what? God's name has been defamed because my predecessor elevated the nation over God and God's word and God's name has been defamed and I want to reconcile it and make it right. Humbling myself 
to go to our enemies and say, how can I make atonement in this situation? The Gibeonites are going to respond to him. We, we know, as David mentioned, we mentioned before, that David was a heart, man after God's own heart. He wasn't perfect, but his heart's desire is seen here to say, I want people to bless God. I want people to be able to engage in praising God and worshiping God. And so we learn from verse three that we must always be doxological in our actions. Everything I do, whether I eat or whether I drink or whatever I do, I do all for the glory of God. And it's easy to say that. It's totally different to do that. Because I can even use that as a facade to actually elevate myself. Oh, I just, I just want to praise God. No, you don't. You actually want people to praise you. Man, well, how do we know our heart's motivation? It's going to be hard for me to know your heart's motivation. You know, the only thing that knows your heart's motivation is the Word of God. The Word of God is quick, it's powerful, it's sharper than any two-edged sword. It pierces even to the dividing asunder of soul and spirit and the joints and marrow and is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. I cannot tell you why Ryan Day is here today. But you might say, well, he's, like, what do you mean why Ryan Day is here today? He's a pastor. He gets a paycheck. This is his job. He loves to preach. Great, he probably does. Is it possible? I don't want to put doubts in your head. Is it possible that Ryan could be here for something other than glorifying God? Yes. Is it possible that I could be standing here for some other reason other than to glorify God? Yes. Is it possible that you are sitting in your chair today for some other reason other than to glorify God? Yes. So how do we know people's hearts? I don't know. I don't know Ryan's heart. But you know who does? God does, and his word does. So as Ryan engages, as Dave engages, as you engage with God's word, God's word, as Hebrews reminds us, pierces down into my heart, and it discerns the thoughts and the intents of my heart. Like James is gonna remind us in chapter one of the man who looks in the mirror and sees himself and says, ooh, that looks rough, but hey, everything's good. I'm gonna go my own way. The godly man, the godly woman looks in the mirror of God's word and says, oh, wow, that's what the Bible's revealing about my heart. God, help me to change. We have people that are in this room who look like you just woke up spiritually, but you think you're amazing. The fact of the matter is we look in the mirror of God's word and we say, wow, I don't want to be the fool who says I look amazing when I look like really rough. God, please change my heart. God, please help me to be doxological in everything I do. That's what David was trying to do. Look at verses four through six, the fourth principle. David now is in this mode of making atonement, making reconciliation. Principle number four. Reconciliation demands persistent humility. This is an interesting text. I always think that about every verse. I think the Bible's interesting. Verse four, the Gibeonites said to him, it is not a matter of silver or gold between us and Saul or his house. Neither is it for us to put any man to death in Israel. Man, we stopped right there. David could have said, ha ha, great. Glad for you guys, you understand. So I came to you. I asked what we can do. You guys kind of said nothing. So good. <laughs> That's awesome. God, I tried. I asked them. They said they didn't need anything. 
no silver, no gold, don't put anybody to death. God, I, I did what you wanted. I, I, I scratched the surface, God. But David knows there is an issue here. These people are the servants. These people are the slaves. They are 